Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I love little chapbooks, like I love collecting small magazines, small format. Uh, they just they just fill me with glee, and I can still recall the sense of excited anticipation the first time I saw a copy of. Desert Oracle, um, which is will be uh, our, part of our discussion today. And it was that rare feeling when you see uh, a publication just from its cover. And you, in, in this case, this nice, warm, but not too bright yellow and black font, simple font, and a beautiful silhouette of a, of a cactus or a UFO. I don't remember which is the first... Um, issue I saw and I knew right away that it was going to be awesome you know it just you, I didn't have to even pick it up and I, I was like oh this is going to be awesome it's like a weird desert zine and indeed it is except much more interesting than just a zine it, it has the feel it's almost a, has a kind of timeless feel of of a, a sort of a guidebook field guide tourist manual with elements and illustrations that remind you of the 1950s, of the 1970s. It's very well laid out. And I haven't even gotten to the content yet. Content put together by our host today, uh, Ken Lane, who puts out Desert Oracle uh, magazine, but also Desert Oracle podcast. He's got a whole Desert Oracle empire out there uh, that he's that he's working on, live events. Uh, you know, he's He's well, he, he doesn't like social media, but he's well represented on social media because he wants to get the Desert Oracle word out. And the words are the best part, even though the design is, is delicious. And it's this marvelous mixture of, of folklore, uh, botany and animal studies, lots of uh, weird Fortiana about yucca men and UFOs and strange lights in the sky but but not too much and always done in that way that's more from the perspective of of kind of psychogeography and the sort of folklore of a landscape rather than that kind of sweaty obsessive uh, paranoid cast that we're all too familiar with and so in addition to uh, the sort of breath of dry sagebrush air I get from the desert oracle every time I, I open it in my not so dry uh, abodes in, in San Francisco. It's dry enough there. Uh, uh, it's also the sense that that my favorite aspect of, of weird culture uh, is you know cont continues to, to flow forward despite the kind of explosion of fake news, uh, conspiracy theory, and then all the sort of guilt that some of us have. I, I don't know if Ken can, sh can share this. We can ask him in a moment. Uh, but but I know as someone who's been interested in, in the weird and uh, paranormal folklore and mysticism and magic and, and you know, crazy invocations, satanic uh, events, whatever. Just that stuff is the, the, the kind of delicious uh, mind food that, that I've been nibbling on uh, uh, for decades. And now with the, the kind of in our post-truth era and you see all the sort of nasty ramifications and all this kind of right-wing conspiracy theory and the way in which 
you know, the lizard men and the UFOs get woven into these kind of racist fantasies or whatever. You know, I feel a little guilty sometimes. Like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I should have been more of a rationalist these last few decades. You know, keep that stuff at bay. But, of course, it's too late. Uh, and so we might as well keep our, our own uh, currents and uh, fantasies and approaches, uh, most importantly, to these kind of matters uh, going strong so that we can mitigate some of the nastier uh, excesses of the fantastic uh, imagination. Uh, so with no further ado, I know I say that every week, but what are you going to do? you got to transition from the monologue to the conversation. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Eric, thank you very much for having me, and I very much like that term, psychogeography. Yeah, I was thinking about that, actually. I was, I, I was kind of reading through the, the, the issues again, and I was going, you know, the idea of psychogeography kind of comes from a very urban situation where people were trying to find the traces of politics and forgotten stories and, and strange juxtapositions very much in the urban landscape, whether it was the Situationists or Alan Moore doing comic books about London in the late 19th century but I realized that it actually is, is probably more appropriate for the desert than any other kind of landscape. I mean, it's like the desert is, from the get-go, psychogeography. It, it is, and it has served that role since the beginning of our civilization. So it, it's an easy layer to put on the desert because it's kind of already there and mostly just obscured by our own chatter and the things that we put along the interstates. Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, it's partly about time. You know, you go into the forests and the mountains, you know, marvelous, marvelous views surrounded by these ancient trees. But but still the sense of time is, is a little closer because even if you're talking about trees you're talking about a couple hundred years and you know and you're just you're, there's a lot of bushes there's birds everywhere whatever you're you're, you're kind of in the, the 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 green you know you're in you're in the, the flora zone even if you can see these great cliff faces and escarpments and such such but when you're in the desert even though there's all this marvelous uh flora the 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 presence of the land and the just the ancient slow but continual mutation of the land is just in your face so it's like the 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 disjunct between your little your little human uh, time frame this hot little beating heart that that lasts for for but a moment of historical time in the face of this this ancient flow uh is it, that itself to me like opens up some kind of cosmic dimension what, regardless of your degree of quote-unquote spirituality or you know interest in religion or whatever, there's there's some kind of uh, encounter with with time and, and space that happens in that environment that almost invariably introduces this dimension of the weird or the 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 non-human or the, uh, the metaphysical. Oh yeah, it's it's obvious when you're walking, say, in the place like the high desert around the Mojave, around Joshua Tree, going through the rocks. You're walking on a visible geologic churn. And so you can kind of trip on a little piece of quartz, say, and 
look to the right from where it's broken up and watch it climb up through the middle of some granite boulders and you're seeing hundreds of thousands of years of kind of churn of materials right under your feet. It's difficult to get too terribly caught up in Twitter, say, when that's under your feet, although I still do. Well, but of course, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind of curious about your own experience. Did you grow up in the desert? Uh, did you uh, find it later in, in life? And, and what were some of the experiences that you, that you first had that kind of, I don't know, opened up that, that dimension for you? Well, I was not born or initially raised in the, in the desert, but my father was. And so when I was growing up in the, in the South, in New Orleans, we would hear stories of, of the desert, mostly told not to inspire, but to horrify. And it had a kind of mythical status, especially the only desert that I had seen at the time being from the Ten Commandments and uh, from Star Wars. So I finally was brought out west in my middle school years, and by the time I had a uh, driver's license, that was my primary activity, going wherever I could, usually alone, sometimes with some delinquent friends, but to whatever spot of the desert. And as briefly lived in Phoenix, Arizona for a couple of years around that middle school era. But I think it was really on the California side that it, it became a permanent part of my uh, existence, I think. Well, here, here's a question for you now. And most of us, when we think about, most Americans, we think about the desert, we think about the Sonoran Desert, Think about the most beautiful desert, probably the Sonoran Desert. Just, you know, it's got the saguaro cacti. It's incredibly rich, dynamic landscape. There's lots of images. There's lots of uh, richness in, in, in the stones, and etc. That's usually the one that pops up uh, in the mind. But the Mojave is, is a very, very uh, rich and, and beautiful place, a poetic place. But its its poetry is a bit more difficult to access. I mean, a lot of... Uh, Californians, you know, you got to get from uh, Los Angeles to to uh, Las Vegas, say, and you just sort of drive through the bleak, you know, and it's almost like just get through it as fast as possible. Try not to get caught, you know, um, and and I think it takes a little bit more time and attention to tune into the the poetry of, of the Mojave Desert, and I, I'd like to hear you kind of riff on on that. Well, in Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, they're making that drive between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And what you're saying about the Sonoran Desert with the saguaro cactus and what had been the kind of mid-century idea of what a desert looked like was so much in the illustrator Ralph Steadman's mind that he illustrated that book with saguaro cactus on either side of the... LA to Vegas Highway. So that's what people thought a desert looked like at, at the time. I've seen it very rapidly change in the past three years. I've been paying close attention to it because I'm doing the Oracle during this time. But the 
first issue of the Oracle because I wanted the classic, iconic American desert view. I did put this old line drawing of a Sonoran desert scene with the multi-armed cactus and the thing that you'd see on the cover of Arizona Highways if you were alive during the 50s through, say, 80s. Alive and cognizant. But just a week ago, there was a story from one of the big news outlets. I think it was the Washington Post about changes that the, the current government was trying to institute within some of the national parks. In the picture that they used for their social media blast of the story was not Redwoods or John Muir scene or Yosemite. It was Joshua trees. And I thought, well, now it's, it's fully turned around. The Joshua tree image is the icon of, of the American desert now. I was up in Vancouver last year in Victoria and in store windows in both of those towns and fashion stores, there were Joshua Tree backgrounds in the window displays. And it, it seems to now be all the way around there. If you look at the Terminator, the, uh, the second Terminator with Linda Hamilton, if that's her name, is going to kill the Terminator and she's hiding out in Mexico. They're in the Mojave and there's Joshua Trees everywhere. Nobody cared in the 80s. You could not do that today. You could not say that someplace in central Mexico was in the Mojave because now the Joshua tree, maybe it started with the U2 record. I'm not sure, but there's been this kind of slow move to the point where, and maybe Arizona's poor political choices over the years have kind of poisoned that idea of the Arizona desert being the iconic American desert. Whatever combination of factors, it does seem like it has now changed. And now the previously unloved and fairly weird looking, not very cuddly looking Joshua tree has earned its place, I guess, for the moment as, as the symbol of, of America's desert and especially the wilderness kind of part of the desert. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there is something, you know, in a way that, that the, the Joshua is kind of a, you know, a distant cousin of the, of the saguaro in, in, in iconographic terms because it does also have a strange, you know, weird human-like uh, like character. Um, I like the idea that there's been some kind of shift to, uh, to a more uh, Cali-centric um, a desert view uh, as sort of the, the kind of archetypal environment of the desert, except to the extent that it means that more and more people are interested in going out to the desert and, uh, you know, driving up land prices and putting in uh, stupid malls and things like that. But that's also kind of partly, partly inevitable. Uh, but that also reminds me that sense of a strange, weird, creaturely quality to the desert, something where, uh, you know, in addition to the to the jackrabbits and the and the and the owls, uh, you have these sort of weird other kinds of creatures that are vaguely, um, hu you know, human but also of, of another order. It reminds me of this of the, the the story of yours that just got 
I don't know what you call it, long-readed. You know, I know something gets tweeted. I don't know if things get long-readed or long-read. Long-read, perhaps? Long-read. You got (laughs) long-read. Anyway, they uh, they picked up this uh, this piece you did in a, in a in an earlier issue on uh, tales of the of the Yucca Man. And while I had heard about the Hairy Man because I had done some work in the Visionary State when we were, when we were... Uh, hello, uh, yeah, when I was doing some work on uh, on the Visionary State, uh, trying to find the sort of origins of Bigfoot and trying to find like what's a good image of a Bigfoot. Where am I going to put that in? And and uh, discovered that on the Yakut re- reservation, there is a marvelous uh, uh, a piece of rock art uh, of the hairy man, or at least that's the story that they have now about this huge, like hairy, weird creature. Um, but I did not know about the Yucca Man. So perhaps you could illumine us a little bit with uh, with a, a bit of a tale of the Yucca Man. Best or most appropriate rock art of one of the large, hairy beasts that frequent California folklore. So the Yucca Man does not seem to differ in big ways from the Bigfoot, Sasquatch-type creatures that are reported from around the area. If there's something really specific about it, it's the way that real things on the landscape, in this case, large yucca trees, which can be eight, ten feet tall, and certain ones in a certain light do have very much the appearance of a two-armed, two-legged, large-headed, shaggy monstrosity. So that's why we call it the Yucca Man up here in the high desert in 29 Palms and Yucca Valley. Joshua Tree, all the way out to the Wildlife Range, National Wildlife Refuge, north of Las Vegas, and the mountains around Area 51, where we still have Joshua Trees. Up in Ridgecrest, there are stories of a Yucca Man. And what they are seems a, a little different in the kind of popular mind compared to, say, the redwood bigfoot the kind of forest animal there seems to be less of an interest in applying some kind of real world biology to the yucca man story in particular to taquits down in taquits canyon in palm springs which is a very similar creature and one of the main stories with the palm springs version is that it can sort of effortlessly transform between this seemingly hairy, lurching monster into a hovering green ball of light. So the way that the the desert creature seems so unlikely as a real animal out here, we see the real animals we have. They're few and far between. They're mostly small like in most of California, our apex predator is the mountain lion, the cougar, and those will have ranges of hundreds of miles per animal. So we just don't see a lot of wildlife. We know there's no water to speak of, especially in the Mojave. It's one of the reasons we have so few cities in the Mojave, outside of Las Vegas being the biggest one. 
then it might be a little easier to believe the yucca man is something that pops in and out of our reality that our we maybe acknowledge our perceptions give the the form its final shape a little more we don't have a lot of cryptozoologists going around trying to prove that this is yucca man scat or a yucca man sleeping circle or what have you well, there's also the uh, the fascinating stuff that you had gotten from from Edwards Air Force Base and some of their internal documents and folklore and all that, and uh, you know that were, that really you know interested me not just because you had you know found some some more good folklore uh, from a site where you normally think that maybe they're going to be either suppressing their folklore or not you know not letting it out uh, even if they found it at all. Um, it's just the way in which. The, uh, the aerospace and the military industrial dimension of the desert uh, enchants the desert even more. That's what's interesting. It's not like there's the old desert, you know, the desert of the, of the Native Americans and of the old pioneers, and that's the desert of folklore and strangeness and ghosts and weeping women and all that. And then, you know, you march into modernity, and then the, the military comes in, and they start building technology and using radar and blah, blah, blah. And that just kind of disenchants this old folkloric, you know, that's sort of a typical story about how modern civilization disenchants the past. But in the desert... You could argue that it's even the opposite is true. Oh, the, very much. That the presence of all this stuff has just made things weirder. <laughs> the, the presence of aerospace technology and secrecy and the Manhattan Project and the bomb test, all of these things mix up with the old stories, which honestly were few and far between. The American Southwest Especially the Mojave was never home to that many people. And so suddenly when it did become home to much more people due to the miracles of government contracts and irrigation, then you had a lot more people who were encountering the weirdness of the desert and in the context that they brought to it. So one of my favorite oddities regards the black triangles that have been seen all over the Southwest and all over the world now for 50 plus years. Now, a lot of the black triangle stories around Antelope Valley and Edwards Air Force Base are connected with early test flights of the stealth aircraft, the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber, as in the generation previous north of Las Vegas distant sightings of the U-2 and other early spy planes made a lot of UFO reports come out of people because they were seeing things that seemed to match the stories they were hearing about UFOs, especially distant silvery things in the sky moving quickly. But in the Mojave, around the Mojave River, it's a very old trail, it's roughly what Route 66 went on and the old Spanish trail. There's an area there looking over one of the few sources of water that is kind of year-round at Afton Canyon where the Mojave River is pushed up from underground, where there are along the trail these old uh, intaglios, I believe they're called, chipped into the surface of, of the dry, hard, rocky earth. And they're big black triangles. 
and they look kind of right in the direction of Ridgecrest, where the Naval Air Station has been for many decades now, and where constantly, to this day, weird black triangles appear and with behavior that seems quite unlike anything that you'd get out of a, a test flight of, of any kind of plane, especially how they disappear and reappear and that kind of thing. So the, the layering of truly ancient stuff, the prehistorical record, to things that seem to be kind of mimicking, copying, or anticipating strange technology that matches the color and geometric shape of these things that must have been important in the past for people to spend so much time pecking them into the ground, it does make the time element kind of confused out here, which is kind of my favorite part about desert folklore, whether it be from the 1950s or the 1500s. Let's talk about that a little more. I mean, the, the time mix, it's like the way that you're, there, there are sort of multiple layers of, of time and you can be in a very, you know, kind of modern historical moment and you just take a right turn and then suddenly it feels like you're in the, you know, early settler period and then another turn and it feels like you're in prehistoric times. And it's also easy to sit there and the rocks resting midway on your hike and think that it's many years, many generations in the future. You can look around and say, well, we know what Mars looks like right now. And it's not completely beyond imagination that in a millennia or so, you might have a very similar environment over much more of the Earth. The spread of deserts is one of the rapid and obvious results of climate change and we're already seeing the spread of the arid part of the country move i believe it's 120 miles to the east in the last century so it makes you aware of a number of more fantastical military tech technology based time elements and also a, a future time that seems very visible when you're looking at bare rocks under a blaring sun. Yeah, that's all, all, all too true. I'm, I'm curious, as you sit there, because you're kind of operating as a, as a folklorist, it's easy for you to, you know, take whatever stories you get. You don't really worry so much about how they interface uh, with reality. Um, but especially when you think about how the secrecy of military development, of aerospace, under the, the fact that Edwards has these enormous underground um, tunnels and, and fabrication factories and all this kind of thing. How have you come to think about the relationship between the you know, military development and the, 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 the secrecy that's part of the, that's clearly part of uh, that uh, you know, these particular places around you, Area 51, Edwards, whatever. Um, and the fact that it's, as at least the way that I read it, is that at least some of ufology can be traced to sort of 
you know, disinformation campaigns from the military that are used to kind of cover the fact that sometimes you see things you're not supposed to see or they don't want you to see, and so you have a UFO story. And it so it gets all mixed up. There's all this sort of fake news, disinformation, folklore, Hollywood, and then act- somewhere in there, actual um, uh, technological developments. I mean, that's the sort of more secular approach, but that's the one I kind of take. How have you come to think about this uh, as you track these stories as they continue to, to emerge and, and bubble up? One kind of consistent thread that goes through not just this desert culture and desert mythology and modern civilization all mixed in, but through all kinds of old philosophies and theologies is this idea that there's one elite group spiritually, intellectually, bloodline, whatever the conspiracy is, um, that has the, the real story, that knows the real thing. And this is the fuel for the study of UFOs, such as they are, and it's been consistent now for a human lifetime. So the idea that there's this secret group, you know, kind of like there's a secret religious groups or secret orders of monks or hiding in the Himalayans. So we have that somewhere here and they control not just knowledge of some sort of, uh, whether it be an extraterrestrial thing or a trans-dimensional thing, but they control this knowledge and they also feed false stories about this knowledge to confuse people and they also use this knowledge as cover for their own technology. So it's a nice weird mix of everything and it's not a terrible surprise that paranoia has become such a problem in the last couple of years when there's kind of a spigot that can't be turned off of this stuff. But I think, and it, it, it's backed up by at least the people who have lived in these areas, that the intrusion of the military and the aerospace technology and especially the bomb testing that resulted from the Manhattan Project, which came out of William S. Burroughs' old boarding school in New Mexico, interfaced in some way with something that is real and on the other side of us, or maybe kind of through a veil, and that it has encouraged a kind of back and forth maybe not for the good. The Edward stories, which are a, not just a single yucca man or a desert sasquatch, but what was described as families of them, whole groups of them kind of walking at will through these tunnels and underground fuel lines and storage facilities around the dry lake that Edwards uses as its runways. Seems to put all these things together. You had you had security guards sitting there at night watching video monitors and they'd see this group of dark shapes walking through on not very good cameras from the 1970s, that kind of grainy black and white 7-Eleven 
security camera kind of thing. And then they'd send people out there and there was nothing there. And these tunnels, which would be locked up, hatches would be open, lights would be shined, and there's nothing there. And then they'd appear on another one that was a mile away, that there was no connection between. And then you'd have these guards go out and be terrorized by these things off in the distance that seemed to be about eight feet tall with big red eyes. And these new suburbs moving into the wild desert, each new suburb seemed to have a wave of desert Sasquatch that would come and knock on sliding glass doors and terrify children and lead people into vigilante raids and the dry washes. And it seemed to generate a, a kind of a chaos that marked the disruption of the wild desert. That is some, that's some psychogeographical stuff, man. That's, it, there's something about the, uh, and which, which then leads us to think a little bit more about what is it about the desert that has that charge? What is it about the wildness of the desert that is perhaps more likely to produce such signs and, and symptoms and, and uh, half, you know, chimeras of, of folklore and, and experience and, um, and, and creatureliness. Uh, one of the things in the, in the recent, uh, the, the most recent issue, the, the stories for a desert campfire number seven, I was thinking about it is a lot of them, a lot of the, the, the articles have a kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's about sort of the danger of the desert. You know, there's, there's the, you know, there's a story about guys who almost die because they're just sort of idiots and they get lost and how often that happens. There's another essay about the fear of the desert and the way people have kind of uh, unbalanced fears. They fear the wrong things when they're going out there. There's, there's a lot of fear around the desert, even for people who, who grow up uh, near it to some degree. Um, is it is it because that we we think of the desert as a place of death? You know, there's sort of something about another. Is it an otherworldliness that seems hostile to human life? Is that part of what gives it this kind of otherworldly uh, feature, or is it just because it's empty and there's not a lot of humans around? There's not not even a lot of creatures around, and that 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 emptiness um, or or apparent emptiness uh, also sort of you know stirs up the uh, up the soul i mean how have you come to you know, spending so much time in there too just your own experiences uh wh when do you feel like you've been kind of closest to grokking that that the, the that mystery of the desert which then leads to these other kinds of you know paranormal or folkloric uh explosions that story, I think it was the one called A Desert Precautionary. That was Doc Daniels in Phoenix. He's uh, the Mojave phone booth character who started all that in the 90s. And he's from Sholo, uh, Sholo, Arizona. That's why he calls himself the Deuce of Clubs. And his story kind of went at, or essay, went at the newcomer to the desert's fears. And if you move to a place like Phoenix, say, and you came from, when I lived in Phoenix, everyone I knew when we moved to a, a suburb of Phoenix got ahead a little bit. You know, got to move to a, 
brand new uh, drywall, 3-2, right on the edge of the desert there. And all the kids in my school, in my middle school there, they'd just been moved out from Wisconsin or Illinois or something. And they were all kind of in shock. So they were horrified by everything. Everybody was worried about scorpions, which just hurt for a little in the rare occasion you step on one, but you do see them and we're kind of hardwired to be uh, repulsed by scorpions. Or they're worried about rattlesnakes, which other than a couple of you know, drunk guys, generally per year in each city, nobody is much bothered by rattlesnakes. Instead of the things that you're supposed to worry about that you should think about, like going out without any water or parking in a dry wash when there's a thunderstorm on the horizon, that the environment of the desert itself is, is the thing to worry about. It's the reason why desert and wilderness were the same word in Greek, the idea that it's a place that is outside of, of the human world. It's outside of civilization. It was primarily due to lack of water. If you can't grow things, then people could not live there. We've managed to change that around in the California desert and the American Southwest in general in the last 50 years, mostly, when we've had our big population booms out here. But that was it. You went to the desert because you were on the run, like Moses from the Pharaoh and the Ten Commandments movie, or because you were spiritually inclined and you wanted to get away from people like John the Baptist, or Jesus, or the Desert Fathers. And because you would go there intentionally, it becomes a place where you can experience the world outside of civilization in a, in a much more direct way because the environment itself is always a, a threat, always something to deal with. The, Satan tempts Jesus with just the basics to live because he's sitting there fasting on a mountaintop. And that would be powerful if you were reading that at the time because you go out into the desert, you know, shepherds would go out with a couple of goats and take a wrong turn and you'd never see them again. Uh, eventually they'd die and the wild dogs would uh, eat them up. So that, that kind of death hovering above in the American West, it's with the buzzard, the turkey vulture, circling you while you're staggering around in the 2 p.m. sun without any water, wondering which way is back to the car and the GPS. So it's mostly the lack of people but the lack of people against an incredibly harsh and quiet landscape that forces you to contemplate your existence, even if you've never wanted to think about that before in your life. In Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, which turns 50 years old this year, one of the best stories in there is about bringing a dead tourist back. He and some sheriffs, he's working as a seasonal park ranger in Arches, National Monument at the time, now Park in Utah. And this guy was in pink and in a Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirt, kind of get up, no hat, wandering around, got lost out in the summer sun. 
But eventually, when he realized, according to Abby, who read this based on how they found the body, he accepted it, and he went over and sat under a juniper, not in a seemingly panicked way, but in a kind of, I, my fate has been sealed, here I am, and sat there looking out on this gorgeous view of the canyon country and arches. And that little walk turned into the ultimate, the final experience for this guy. But at the end of it, because where he was, in Abby's view again, he had a spiritual experience at the end. He was able to be calm, realize what was happening, and set himself up with this panoramic view in the comfort of the shade, and then he expires. And then they carry him back in a body bag and complain about how much he weighs. <laughs> oh, that is an amazing tale. That, and it has an, an, an Edward Abbey uh, a wit to it. Uh, and since you... Uh, since there is the, the, the 50th year of Desert Solitaire and, and you're going to be devoting your next issue uh, to Abby, uh, talk a little bit about what, what, you know, what, how, how he plays a role in kind of articulating at least a, an American uh, vision of the desert. You know, it's some, it, uh, you know, when you think about Western naturalist, spokesman, poet types, you know, you know John Muir uh, holds such a high place, you know, at least from a, a, a West Coast kind of perspective and Edward Abbey to me always represented this sort of other pole um, something more uh, frisky and and you know there's this great line where he has about the freedom you know he's you know so he loves the desert you know is, is, is against a, a lot of the the crass uh, destruction of the desert and against aspects of modernity and development and all this you know and an, a, an environmentalist guy uh, but he has this great line about the, the freedom of, of like of drinking a beer as you're driving across the highway in the middle of the night in the desert and throwing the throwing the crushed beer can out the window and he just has this kind of like there's this wit to his commitments uh that make him a very accessible character as well as a very uh you know powerful one. Oh yeah abby started off as a philosopher uh, that's where he uh uh, that's what he studied at the University of New Mexico after a brief bit of service as a military policeman in Italy in World War II, at the end of World War II. Then he wanted to be a philosopher. Well, he wanted to be all kinds of things. He wanted to be a composer, and he played classical flute, and he wanted to be a cartoonist and a novelist and everything. And he kind of failed at those other things, and because what he did for fun, for nourishment, is wander around the desert. Finally, one of his editors, because he had done a couple of novels and they didn't sell, said, hey, why don't you write about your camping stories? And he did so in the brothel up at Ash Meadows. He was working as a, a school bus driver in Death Valley. And there was a Ash Meadows brothel there, kind of between his stops. Shoshone, Furnace Creek, etc., Death Valley Junction. And he typed these things up and he put his previous life's experiences, which did not necessarily go with nature writing in general, 
And because he was a contrarian, I mean, he'd be a terrible person on the internet. I'm kind of glad he's gone you know, in that respect, because he turned into a, quite a crank in Tucson in the 80s in his last years. But he brought these elements of humor and the kind of anti-hero and the screw-up into the desert stories, and it made him so much more human. What he also did that was new at the time and seems very dated and kind of an internet atheist way today is he made a real strong stance against having any kind of God or supernatural entities. And he'd go after other nature writers for their, their frequent use of, of deities and gods and such and praising the beauty and such of nature. So whatever his personal beliefs were, I'm not sure. He seemed to be a little nervous about them. He took acid once in Death Valley. He writes about this in The Journey Home, a early 70s book of essays. And it terrified him. He was not ready to go down that path, and he never did anything like that again. So there's, there's a kind of brittle edge to Abby's approach to the philosophy of the human alone in the desert. And it's, uh, it's both what made it, I think, unique at the time and it's still very bracing to read today, but it's not as novel as it would have been then. Well, uh, talking about this, this, this sense of God and nature or the spirituality of nature, and of course that, that comes up you know, in all in all nature writing, but I would probably say even specifically in terms of the desert, because it it, it has this cosmic connotation, uh, regardless of your degree of of atheism. I, I'm just curious about you, like how how have has your sense of I mean, I, I'm not asking all like all your most intimate beliefs, but just how spending more and more time with the desert and really devoting yourself to understanding it, and understanding how other people find their way through it, and We've talked about the sort of more paranormal, mysterioso side of it, but there's also this kind of grand, uh, big picture, uh, cosmic dimension of it. How, how have, have, has your sense of yourself in the desert changed um, through this sort of long tutelage you, you've had? Well, I did not grow up particularly religious, but I had an interest in such things. And then like a lot of kids in Southern California of the 70s, very early 80s, I went to one of these suburban Christian churches out here. You know, it was uh, there were youth nights, uh, your friends would go in the suburbs. This is still true in some parts of California, some parts of suburban Orange County. But it was really common up and down the coast. And it was kind of the remnants of the Jesus Freak movement. So they used that terminology. They had a, a Bible written in hippie language called The Way, which is hilarious. Did, have you ever seen this? I, I have. I'm, I'm actually a, a, a huge like Jesus Freak fan. I have like lots of material and a whole oh. archive and stuff. I don't own The Way, but I've seen it. The Way is comical. The Way is like a, a Saturday Night Live skit from the late 70s of 
hippies doing the the gospels in in cliched hippie language. It's great. So I was interested in the stuff. I uh, became born again, which I found very you know interesting as a as a theology. And then within about twelve months, I just kind of run into all the usual dead ends. This is when the, the Jesus Freak movement was transforming into the fundamentalist church of the 80s within a lot of the same uh, churches and denominations is when they became very much a political thing, an anti-abortion thing, uh, anti-rock and roll, and all, all this kind of stuff. And I lost interest in it and found it comical and there were the usual youth pastors going to jail for uh, various indiscretions with uh, male and female youth and everything that that makes organized religion you know, kind of funny, especially the American version. And so I felt kind of distant from it for a long time. And based on what I've read of, of your works, you've gone through something like this as well. I kind of looked at different religions and movements from uh, the Rosicrucians. I studied uh, the Rosicrucian stuff for a number of years from their mail order program out of San Jose. Uh, I kind of became Buddhist. I meditate every day. I was vegetarian for 10 years, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I feel at this point that a very simple kind of Tolstoy kind of Christianity is the most appealing thing to me. Uh, the idea that the kingdom of heaven is here on earth and we do not see it without some effort. So if you asked me two years ago, you know, are you of a religion? I'd probably say not a particular one. You know, one of the, the usual California things. Oh, I'm, you know, spiritual. Um, but maybe it's because I feel that I'm kind of at the point in my life span where, say, uh, Philip K. Dick was when he was typing up his theologies and they kept kind of returning back to a sort of purified Christianity that... I'd say, yeah, I can, I can say I am some sort of Christian. And do you think the desert has something to do with that? Very much, very much. There is, you know, and it, and ultimately, what I kind of decided after you know, I've been living, except for a few brief visits to civilization, uh, for all of this century in, in the desert, in the Great Basin, up outside of uh, Reno the Virginia foothills in the western Mojave uh, toward Antelope Valley and for the last decade in the uh, Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, Morongo Basin area and from just sitting out in the rocks by myself, walking out in the desert by myself with my dog uh, every day. That's what I do every day even when I don't have time for lunch or whatever. I make sure that I do that. It feels like whatever had been my kind of base spiritual background as a child would have settled in and become real, but certainly not dogmatic at this point. So if I 
was doing the same thing somewhere in India or uh, Lebanon or Scotland, I think the same kind of thing would be happening as long as I was in some kind of wild environment. Yeah, that makes that makes that makes good sense, you know. And it's and it's an interesting way to 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 tie in with the desert too, because it, you know one thing we haven't really talked about is the kind of you know uh, political complexity of, of of deserts in the in the Southwest, where you know it's it's there's a lot of like very serious conservatives, both Christian conservatives and you know, leave me alone, you know, I got my gun, <laughs> kind of survivalist conservatives and, or whatever you want to call that. And then you have people with uh, very different values coming in and concentrating in certain kinds of areas. And it always seemed to me that that, especially in the desert, is a place where you could glimpse certain kinds of commonality, certain kinds of ways of just either a respect for independence, a respect for being able to, you know, know how to navigate a very difficult environment, uh, that there that there was some way in which you could imagine a kind of I don't know crossing there, uh, and it seems like having a being aware of one's religious sensibility and recognizing that other people have very different approaches to it, but that there is some kind of commonality, some kind of resonance across people seems um, productive in that in- environment as well. You know, in terms of relating with other people, in addition to relating with your, to yourself in alone in in the rocks it it does and it stresses i think in a you know, very positive way that's been hard especially for generation x or baby boomers to kind of get their head around because christianity in particular was so noxious in the 1980s and uh, well into the early part of this century politically where the more socially minded, more morally based behaviors were kind of separated from that. It seems less of an issue with the millennials since they grew up in a less religious time in general. So I think they might be a little more comfortable with I certainly see it with things like the Catholic ecology groups and uh, some of the socialist Christian groups. There's a Washington Post opinion writer who's a socialist Christian now, these are things you would not have expected in, say, the 1980s when religion in America seemed to be so poisoned against good behavior. You know? So um, out here in uh, a place like Joshua Tree, we've always had small monasteries. We have a Buddhist monastery. We have... Uh, St. Andrew's Catholic Monastery on the other side of the desert, a couple of others. We'd have pl- places like Sedona. But overall, it had been the people who had chosen to kind of separate themselves for one reason or another from the larger society. It was only 10 years ago we got high-speed internet in Joshua Tree. And that, more than anything, has changed what kind of people can live full-time in the desert. And that you know, we may see very big demographic changes by the time of the next census and the next election. And we've got a you know, congressional district in the, in the Mojave and up into the eastern Sierra that is competitive for the first time since, certainly since I could vote. So there, there's a, a bit of a, a, a change in, in approach that's changing with the population. 
Are you worried about the? We only got a minute left, but are, are you are you are you feeling good about how it's changing? Out here, we're surrounded by national parks, national monuments. As long as we keep those, and it's just kind of a rotation of people within the same kind of sparse communities, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with more people who are interested in intentionally living in the desert. But I'm not interested in more people in general because we don't have, we simply can't support it. Um, in larger desert cities, Phoenix, Las Vegas, that's a, a whole different thing. I hope that's never the kind of thing we're talking about in the Mojave High Desert around Joshua Tree. That would be absurd, especially at our, our time today. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there, Ken. Ken Lane, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. I was very happy to be here. Excellent. And just a reminder to folks, you can go to DesertOracle.com to uh, subscribe to the, mag, uh, to the magazine and, uh, and also find out more about the podcast and other events that Ken's doing. So please do so. And until next week, keep your minds open. Thank you.